In the episode, Fauna says that she felt something otherworldly while she was in the basement and that it just immobilized her. She kept repeating, I can't move, and I know she's here. Hello, everyone. Hi, I'm Melissa Fiorentino. And I'm Hadley Mendelson, and you are listening to Dark House. We're your hosts. If you're new here, in each episode, we tell the story of a house that's infamous for one reason or another. We research who lived there, who died there, and the events that led to the home's infamy. Last week, we learned about Elizabeth Short's life in 1940s L.A. through the letters and stories from people who knew the murder victim, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, which also gave us a better sense of who she was before her death overshadowed the details of her life. We also use newspapers, census records, and investigative files to piece together Elizabeth's movements leading up to her horrific death. Then we went over some of the many suspects and from there explored why investigators thought a skilled surgeon was the killer, which brings us to today's episode, where we'll meet one of the DA's most compelling suspects, George Hodel, a doctor who lived in Los Feliz. Today, we'll start by zooming out to Los Feliz, one of LA's oldest and most iconic hillside neighborhoods just northeast of Hollywood, where suspect Dr. George Hodel lived and committed a handful of crimes, including possibly torturing and murdering Elizabeth Short. We'll dig into his home, aka the John Souden House, which is a historic Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. Mayan revival marvel towering over Franklin Avenue. You'll hear about the wild parties he threw in the landmark house and his fascination with surrealist art and hypnosis, as well as how much of a creep he was, (laughs) mainly because of all the accusations of murder, incest, and sexual abuse against him. Plus, we'll talk about his probable connection to Elizabeth. And after comparing George's profile to Elizabeth's killer, we'll talk about why investigators ultimately let the case go ice cold. Before we begin, I just want to give everyone a heads up that there are a lot of upsetting topics in this episode, including sexual assault and incest. So please listen with caution. All right, time to talk about my favorite L.A. neighborhood. Let's do it. Los Feliz is flanked on the north by Griffith Park, on the southeast by Silver Lake, and on the south by East Hollywood, and then on the northwest by Hollywood and the hills. And I will now dive into our history refresher. As far back as 10,000 years ago, there were Native American villages throughout the countryside of LA, but LA was not officially founded until 1781 under a Spanish governor, when it was just a small farming community with only 14 families. Hmm. And in 1795, the Spanish governor gifted the land between Silver Lake all the way to the east end of Hollywood to a man named Jose Vicente Feliz, who was to run it as a ranch. And all of LA was part of New Spain until 1821, when Mexico gained independence. The main manor that the family lived in while it was run as a ranch has been knocked down, but there is still an old adobe house near Griffith Park that Feliz built in the 1830s. LA itself was officially incorporated after California became a state in 1850, so about 20 years after that house was built. And after the conquest of Mexico, the Feliz family gave the massive rancho to a noted statesman. Isn't there local lore about Los Feliz land being cursed? Mm-hmm. Yes, that is the legend. How true it is, we're not totally sure, but I'll tell it to you because it's very interesting. So in 1863, when Feliz died of smallpox, 
His surviving sister, Soledad, and then his teenage niece, Doña Pentrania, weren't willed the land. As I said, he gave it to a politician. And the rumors are that that politician illegally got a dying Feliz to sign away his land to him. Mm. But a judge did uphold the will, which is why his survivors then cursed the land. And most legends have it quoted like this. One shall die an untimely death, the other in blood and violence. A blight shall fall upon the face of this terrestrial paradise. The cattle shall no longer fatten, but sicken on its own pastures. The wrath of heaven and the vengeance of hell shall fall upon this place. So a little intense. A plague on both your houses. Sure, exactly. And one future owner ended up shot and killed. And then another had to sell it because guess what? All the cows died. Well, well, well. And some people think it might explain why the entire neighborhood seems to be a magnet for misfortune, if you will. And I'll be mentioning some examples of said misfortune throughout the episode. But eventually, another wealthy man named Griffith, his name was Griffith Griffith. You're lying. No, I'm serious. Ended up buying the hilly part of the ranch in 1882. And he was, by most accounts, not a good guy. Tell me more. Well, Griffith drunkenly shot his wife in 1903 Mm. while they were vacationing in Santa Monica. And he thought that she was trying to poison him. So that's why he was interrogating her. And during that, she got really scared, dropped to her knees and prayed. And that's when he shot her in the head. That's crazy. And she survived, but she lost an eye. And there were some local whispers that the curse was to blame for his behavior. I was wondering. Yeah. And in December 1912, sometime after he was released from his brief two-year prison sentence, Griffith offered a Christmas present to Los Angeles in the form of a Greek theater and a hall of science that would be built at his expense on his land. And both of those things are there today. And in 1919, when he died, he donated over half the ranch to the city of L.A. So they named the massive park after him, hence the name Griffith Park. If you've seen La La Land or Neon Demon, so pick your poison there, then you've seen shots of the park's iconic views. And today, Griffith is over 4,000 acres, which is five times the size of Central Park. Quite the generous gift. I know, that's what I was thinking, but some think that maybe he gifted it because no one wanted to buy this supposedly cursed land. That's a good point. So now let's talk about Los Feliz, the neighborhood, which sits right outside of Griffith Park to the south. It was slow to develop. In the 1910s, there were only 23 properties in Los Feliz, and LA as a whole was much more spread out and less populated than other major cities in the U.S., By the peak of the roaring 1920s, so in the middle of Prohibition and Hollywood's silent film era, but pre-stock market crash, it was booming. And the winding hills of Los Feliz lent themselves to gorgeous sweeping views of the city, but also privacy and tranquility away from the bustling urban center of downtown. And in 1923, the Hollywood sign was erected on the southwest side of Griffith Park to advertise the Hollywood land housing development. Needless to say, there are tons of amazing landmarked buildings there, especially in this neighborhood that we're focusing on. Okay. In 1925, Griffith's wealthy son built the Van Griffith Estate, which is so pretty, I think, an exemplary of the Mediterranean and Spanish revival style homes in the neighborhood. And then in 1929, The iconic Richard Nutra built his famous modernist home nearby. As far as the storybook look goes, this is basically its birthplace. Hmm. Think craggy stone, thatched roofs, random looking patches and black timber. 
A great example is the Shakespeare Bridge, which was built in 1926 to connect Los Feliz to the Franklin Hills area, which is a tiny little neighborhood between Los Feliz and Silver Lake. It's a Gothic bridge with little towers on each end. And now there are houses in the, like at the bottom of the massive hill. Okay. But it used to be over a ravine. It sounds whimsical. Is it a footbridge or a bridge you drive over? You can drive over it, but it's not very long. I think it's, it's definitely under 300 feet long, which is pretty short. I remember when I first moved to the area after college, I got lost on the bridge and it kind of felt like I was on a 300 foot bridge. I was trying to get to the market and then I was lost in this network of hills. It's a very hilly, narrow, somehow they're all two way streets, but it doesn't feel Mm. like they should be. And I kind of felt like I was on Mr. Toad's wild ride at Disneyland. And speaking of dark fairy tale vibes, Disneyland was modeled off of 1920s, 30s and 40s Los Feliz. It was that charming. And one of Disney's major studios was at Hyperion and Rowena where Gelson's stands today. That is a big supermarket and also my favorite place to meditate in LA. It's somehow peaceful to me, but technically that's Silver Lake since it's on the other side of the Franklin Hills. But that studio opened in 1926 and it's where Mickey Mouse was born. Isn't that cute? It's cute, but is it just me or is original OG OG Mickey Mouse just a bit creepy looking? I guess he's a little ratty. Yeah. Disney had to move by 1940 because of the success of Snow White. Her girl. (laughs) And they eventually knocked down the studio in the 60s. But Walt Disney himself raised his family in the area on Lyric Avenue. Cool. And that's right amid all of these storybook-style homes. So the Snow White Cottages, that's the name of a group of houses, are a great example of the style in the area. But creepily enough, Hmm. David Lynch's neo-noir Mulholland Drive takes place in the cottages and musician Elliot Smith once lived in them. He died after a mysterious stabbing in 2003 that remains unsolved as either a suicide or homicide. Mm. Remind me to Google that later. I will. So this area is just brimming with Hollywood lore. And while Disney was doing his brother's grim thing, another design duo was thriving in the area. Frank Lloyd Wright Sr. and his son of the same name, who we will call Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright was one of the most prolific modern architects, having designed over a thousand buildings during his career, some of the most famous being in Chicago and Los Angeles, mostly in Los Feliz. The Wrights were working together on projects when the older Wright said, I'm fed up here. You're young enough to take Los Angeles. So his son built today's protagonist, the John Soudan House at 5121 Franklin Avenue. We are going to link to photos and post them on our Instagram at Dark House Podcast if you want to follow along as I describe the house. Lloyd Wright wanted to make a name for himself by evolving his dad's designs, and he got his first big chance to do so in 1926 when photographer John Soudan commissioned him to build his dream home. Okay. John and his wife of six years, Ruth, were moving to Los Angeles with their six-year-old daughter, and they wanted a bohemian playhouse where they would throw parties for aspiring actors and other Hollywood-adjacent types. Bougie. The Soudans bought a lot in Los Feliz that was over 13,000 square feet on the north side of Franklin Avenue, facing downtown between Normandy and Hollywood. The house itself is 5,600 square feet with seven bedrooms and four bathrooms, and it's made of reinforced concrete and stucco over a wood frame. It is incredibly sculptural, and the facade has an ancient Mayan tomb-like look to it. Tomb. And since Franklin Avenue is at the foot of the hills, the structure looms above the street. There is a low concrete retaining wall at the street level with two patinaed 
iron gates, very Art Deco. They lead to a bifurcated staircase, which then merges into one staircase as it gets closer to the front door leading up the hill. And there's another fan-shaped patinaed copper gate over huge French doors once you reach the top of the steps. And Lloyd Wright wanted the massive entrance to look like a cave, but it looks more like a monster's mouth because of these triangular decorative stone units that jut out and over the front doors. It's really hard to explain, so I'll do my best. And above the doors, there's a large, many-paned window that has an identical decorative stone unit sculpture that comes to a high point above the roof line. It sounds like a fortress. I'm getting legends of the hidden temple imagery. Exactly. And when I say mouth, it's because like those decorative triangle things kind of look like the lips and then as if it's letting out like a scream are the doors. Like teeth more. Kind of. Like some people call it the Jaws house. Mm. Yeah. And the entire facade of the house, aside from the doors and the over-the-top cave situation, is completely windowless. So flanking the doors are two square masses of seamless cement that contrast really heavily with that dramatic opening. And the lack of windows makes it alluring or off-putting. I guess let's go with mysterious to outsiders. Look at me, but don't look at me vibes. Right, but mostly look at me. And back in the day, it was surrounded by lush banana trees, very Indiana Jones, like you'd need a machete to get through the brush. And also probably because there's something dangerous waiting for you on the other side of the cave, so you're going to need it for self-defense. Wait, so is it really dark inside then if there's no windows? Well, the entire house is built around an elaborate central courtyard with all of the rooms in the house opening directly onto it or by way of a corridor with direct access to the courtyard. So that allows for plenty of light to come in and out of the house. And it's also completely rectangular with the center hollowed out. Just to confirm, you can't see this from the outside, right? Right, exactly. So the front doors opened into the main living area and down the corridor on the right, there was the primary bedroom with a private bath as well as a second, third, fourth, and fifth bedroom. Hmm. And there was also another bathroom on that side of the hall with a built-in tub with an art deco sculptural tile masterpiece that kind of mimics the exterior stonework. And at the end of that corridor, directly across from the main hall, so if you're looping around to the left and the courtyard is between those two, there was a dark room built for Soudan. If you were to look straight back from the main living area at the front of the house across the length of the courtyard, so toward the hills, you'd see that the crazy concrete blocks making the triangular crown at the roof repeat on both sides of the house. Okay. As do the big multi-paned windows. And today, the windows retract completely so that the rooms are open from floor to ceiling, making it feel like you're outside while you're actually inside. And the former dark room is now just another living space. I feel like it's the house you would see in spy movies. It has a lot of character, we'll say. And also, it's kind of kooky and a work of art. Back to the front of the house, the left side of the main living room opens up into a big study. The left and slash west side of the house connects to another corridor with the communal spaces, like the dining room and the pantry, followed by the kitchen and then a screened-in porch with an incinerator on it. And the servants' quarters also had a hall that paralleled the main corridor and provided access to two more servants' rooms and a bathroom. But before the alley and the driveway were built, the back hillside was covered with ivy. 
And unlike some of the other famous Frank Lloyd Wright homes in the area, it does not have sweeping views of the city. You can see busy Franklin Avenue if you were standing on the main entryway looking out from the front doors, but no one else could see you, which kind of gives it a creepy, voyeuristic, but kind of powerful positioning. Also, as crazy as it sounds, the layout and the shape of the building makes me feel like it's actually pretty straightforward and easy to find your way throughout. It's super compartmentalized, but systematic, like a control freak would enjoy, honestly, that layout, I think. And while it's less mysterious inside, the interiors are still somewhat odd. A lot of the walls and ceilings feature the same intricate and dimensional block units used for the decorative crowns. And the tomb inspiration gives it a somber church feel, in my opinion, Hmm. despite the light pouring in from the courtyard. It's just very moody and almost sensual. But creepiest of all, there's a partial basement below the living room in the southern portion of the eastern wing, so by the study. And until the 1970s, it was not finished, usable space. Hmm. And even though it was a huge feat for Lloyd Wright, the Soudans did not live in the home for long, at least not together. According to everything I read, they left because the Mayan revival style was getting a lot of flack for standing out, I would assume. The irony. But that's not the whole story. I found deep cut records showing that Ruth and John actually got divorced and John ended up moving to a nearby apartment in 1930, which is when Ruth remarried a guy named David Barnett inside their Franklin Avenue house. Hmm. And I found that by like meticulously reading original newspapers because no one reported on that otherwise. The only clue I had was that Ruth was the name of the second woman who owned the home as well, although it turned out to actually be the same as the first. Okay. So the Barnetts lived there with two staff members and Ruth's daughter, who she had with John until 1936 when they sold it to Milton Blazier, whose occupation was listed as selling real estate. So I think that he bought it as an investment because by 1940, a family rented out the main area while the former staff quarters were rented out as studios. And one of the renters was actually a child actor in silent era movies, but he was the only noteworthy occupant until 1945 when Dr. George Hodel, today's villain, bought it. It sounds like a villain house. Mm-hmm. Disclaimer, we know a lot about George's interpersonal affairs through his son, Steve, because when George died in 1999, his last wife, June, gave Steve all of his dad's effects, which led Steve to find out that his dad was a suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder. Dun, dun. Steve was around five years old at the time of the investigation, which is why he didn't know about it until he was a grown adult. And Mm. that discovery led the then-retired Steve, who had formerly been a decorated L.A. detective with 300 homicide investigations under his belt to try to prove that his dad could not have done it. But Mm. instead of accomplishing that, Steve ended up uncovering a lot of dirt that convinced him his dad, Dr. George Hodel, most likely did commit the crime. That is so juicy. And the initial zinger was a photo album that included a photo of a woman Steve thought was Elizabeth. And even though that sparked his investigation, the case does not hinge on it. In my opinion, it definitely isn't. Yeah, I don't think so. But I think a lot of the critics get too caught up on this detail because the rest of what Steve found was pretty damning. In 2003, Steve published a book about his findings, The Black Dahlia Avenger, and several more since. As he was researching, he realized that LAPD lost a ton of evidence in the case, as you may recall from part one. 
But one of the L.A. Times columnists who was writing a story on Steve's book asked the L.A. County DA's office for more information so he could fact check. And they gave the reporter access to a file containing tons of Lieutenant Frank Jemison's reports. He'd made copies and put them in a safe in the basement of the office. They included all of the investigative work that the LAPD had done prior so that he could narrow down his list of suspects and then also his own investigative information. So that was a huge help to everyone who studies the case, me included. But I also combed through newspapers from the era. I read the now leaked autopsy report and I tried to weigh the multitude of theories based on the primary sources that I was not only relying on Steve's perspective. Okay. I did get to speak to Steve myself. So I'm going to insert a couple of clips from our call throughout this episode where I think his insight is going to be helpful. And I'm excited for you to hear Alyssa and everyone listening, of course. But with that, let me tell you about Dr. George Hodel. I'm ready. George was born in October of 1907 in Pasadena. He was an only child. And according to Steve, highly spoiled, but controlled by his mother. And his IQ was very high, 186. What's the average IQ? I think between 85 and 115. So even something like 130 is considered very high. And George graduated early from high school and enrolled at Caltech when he was 15 or young. And Hodel family lore says that he ended up having an affair with an older woman, possibly a professor's wife, and got her pregnant, which then resulted in her moving back to her hometown, Boston. We're getting a real bad look in this episode. I don't know. And his story is that she rejected him and even laughed in his face at the prospect of him raising the kid. I mean, a kid raising a kid. Yeah. I get it, but... So George got expelled from Caltech for unknown reasons and pivoted to pursue art, self-publishing a paper about the budding surrealist movement. He had a one-man photography show, but the whole art thing eventually fizzled and he moved to San Francisco where he dabbled in journalism. And then... Circa 1928 to 1930, he had a common-law wife named Amelia. They had a baby, George's eldest son, Duncan. And in 1932, George enrolled at UC Berkeley as a pre-med student. George was having an affair with a woman named Dorothy, who was a model and an artist. But he had a daughter named Tamar with Dorothy in 1935. They ended up getting married, he and Dorothy. And in 1936, he went to UCSF Medical School to study surgery. Oh, no. Dorothy and George were divorced by 1940. I'm getting whiplash. This is crazy. Uh Uh-huh. That was around when he graduated from med school. And from there, he briefly worked as a surgeon at a logging camp in Arizona, which is a transitory work site for lumberjacks. Dare I ask why they need a surgeon? I mean, I'm sure. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. (laughs) But by the early 40s, he was back in Southern California. On his draft card from 1942, there's a section that says, person who will always know your address. And he wrote, Mrs. George Hodel, wife, which is not helpful because as you're picking up on his marriage bed was a revolving door. Yeah, you could say that. And by the early 1940s, when he was living in L.A., he married a different Dorothy, (sighs) which is confusing. But don't worry, he gave her a nickname, Durero. So we're going to call her Durero. And this nickname was a reference to a desire or lust or something in Latin. Okay, wait, can you quickly tell us what he looks like? I don't know if I believe this guy's catching all these girls. In his 30s, when most of the story unfolds, he was kind of fugly in a squirrely way. But Mm. maybe because I don't like him, that's why I think that if he were a nice guy, I might describe him as somewhat handsome or at least dapper. But That's a trap. Don't fall for that, Hadley. Mm -hmm. He had curly, short black hair, a thick Mm. mustache with a little sliver down the center, beady eyes, and a predatory smirk. 
Yeah. I think he was average height and build, definitely not small. And he carried himself with confidence since he had power given his profession and intelligence. I could see how he got that air of superiority, but people described him as speaking with both charisma and authority. Sounds a little bit like a cult leader combo. Yes, well said. So once in LA, George joined the LA County Health Department specializing in venereal disease control, which is Hmm. basically STD control. He also had three more sons with Dorero, Michael, Steve, and Kelly. So he's had six kids so far in our story, and Tamar was a good 10 years older than Steve, just to give you a frame of reference. Okay, so then what's the deal with his mom, Dorero? She'd been married once before to none other than John Huston, the director who won an Oscar for Chinatown, classic L.A. movie, and his daughter is Angelica Houston from The Witches and The Adams Family, which are both mm. very on brand for Dark House. So Dorero was born in New York City, but her family relocated to Pasadena when she was young. And that's where she met both John and George. So she reconnected with George after her divorce from John. Okay. So back to George. He eventually worked his way up and he became the head of the VD department for all of L.A. County, which was a pretty important role in the 30s and 40s because gonorrhea and syphilis were considered a major public health concern, especially once World War II started. An unfun fact. And George was quoted in a paper during World War I saying he suspected more soldiers were sick with STDs than with wounds, and soldiers had to sit out on the battlefield because of it. There was also a stigma and taboo of STIs and STDs as there still is today. So there's a lot of power that came with that role, and he had a lot of dirt on people. So much for do no harm. So George had a clinic for his medical practice. It was on First Street in downtown L.A., which is about a mile away from the Biltmore Hotel, which we discussed as one of the last places, if not the last place, Elizabeth was seen alive. And George had a habit of deliberately misdiagnosing his patients. He would charge them what's worth about $1,000 in today's money for consultations and treatments for STDs they did not have. What the hell? And he got away with it? Well, in 1945, the year the Hodels moved into the Souden house, one of the former misdiagnosed patients sent his office documentation from a second opinion she had sought. And she also had proof of illegal abortions he was performing. Oh, shit. And George's married secretary, Ruth Spaulding, likely read the patient's accusatory letter, which Steve thinks resulted in a big fight between George and Ruth Spaulding, wherein she threatened to expose him to the authorities. It's unclear Mm. why she would have done that. Maybe she was just a good person with integrity, but Steve thinks that she was having an affair with him and wanted to use it as blackmail. Regardless, George went to Ruth's downtown LA apartment on the evening of May 9th, 1945, and found her overdosed on barbiturates. Well, that's a suspect. Steve remembers their mother, Dorero, getting a call from George saying he was there and that Ruth was unconscious after a suicide attempt. He apparently asked Dorero to come there and take the incriminating documents and destroy them. I hope she didn't. Well, Steve's theory is that George drugged Ruth and that because he was a doctor, he knew exactly what dose would make her temporarily comatose, but give him enough time to drop her off at a hospital while she was still alive, while also still making sure it was too late to save her. Ew. And he carried a dying Ruth into a taxi and then dropped her at a receiving hospital a couple miles away where she died 20 minutes later at the age of 27. Was he a suspect in Ruth's death? Well, Steve says the LAPD was suspicious of him, but that they had insufficient evidence to charge him. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense. Did Dorero ditch his ass after or what? (laughs) Did she get rid of the paperwork? 
Well, either the year Ruth died or the year after, so 1945 or 46, Dorero and George got divorced. But let me tell you what kind of <sighs> husband he was through an anecdote from the Hodel's friend, Maddie Comfort. She was an aspiring model and actress and was one of the bohemian creatives who would party with the Hodels in the 40s when they lived at the Souden house. And Maddie claimed that she was in love with both Dorero and George during that period. And she sadly okay. passed away before Steve's book came out, but she did see an article promoting the book in People magazine before she died. And so she told her then partner about it. That partner then gave Steve Maddie's unpublished posthumous memoir. Here's an excerpt from it. One morning around 10 a.m., I was laying in bed and I hear this crash and Dorero crying. I ran into the bathroom. Dorero was in the tub. George, cool as you please, explains to me Dorero is an alcoholic and has sneaked a drink. He was reprimanding her for her own good. I'm protesting. You could break her neck. George, I cannot stand to see you knocking poor Dorero around like this. Please don't treat her like this. Meanwhile, I'm busy trying to pull Dorero out of the tub. We were all stark naked. Why were they naked? I don't like that Dorero was in the tub. Mm. Because I know last week you mentioned if Elizabeth's body was drained, she may have been in a tub. Mm-hmm. Freaky. Did Dorero have a drinking problem or is that a lie? Well, I found an article from 1946 that says, quote, a woman who identified herself as the author of two books for children was sentenced to jail yesterday for the neglect of her children. Mrs. Dorothy Hodel, recently divorced from George Hodel, medical doctor in Shanghai, was given 90 days in jail. Twice before she was arrested on the same charge, testifying in her own defense, she said she was unable to care for her children because she was too busy writing books. The reality is that she did, in fact, have a drinking problem, and that was what was going on. When that was published, Dorero and the boys were living with their uncle in Silver Lake, as well as at the Souden House, sort of in between. They would go back right. and forth. And the boys were young, under 10, but they do remember living there a lot, even post-divorce. So here's Steve explaining what it was like to live in the Souden House. It was fantasy land for us three boys. You know, dad was the king. Mom was the queen, and we were the three little princes running around, you know. My room was all the way in the back. It's been converted now, so it doesn't exist. But, you know, I, I have nothing but positive memories about the house. All of these really cool people, a lot of laughter, you know, cocktail parties. We climb up on the roof and look down and watch and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I had no negative feelings about it that I can recall it at all. I mean, other than I should remember more than I do. So there, hmm. there may have been something that caused some sort of a, you know, uh, washing out of memories, I don't know. So, you know, basically we had no real connection with the house after the stuff hit the fan. And uh, truth be known, it, we didn't live there full time during from 45 to 50. It was kind of an in and out situation. Would come and go. Wow. But back to Dorero, I still don't believe she snuck a drink in the case with Maddie Comfort in the bathtub. Yeah. Even if she did, though, get your hands off of her. Right. Anyway, Dorero clearly needed George's help, who in 1946 was living in China. So there's that Shanghai reference. And he was working under the title Lieutenant General for the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. In a letter to Lloyd Wright himself, which I was shocked to see. What? George had written to him because he was trying to recruit him to work in city planning there. Whoa. I think he was trying to cozy up with him and felt really cool that he had bought his house that he designed. Social climber. Exactly. With the artists, especially. And George said that he'd be in Shanghai through the spring of 1947. But we know that by September 1946, 
he abruptly resigned for personal reasons, possibly to reconcile with Dorero or because he had an STD, maybe both reasons. The irony. And maybe he even got himself into hot water over there and had to come home. But whatever the reason, when he got back to L.A., he was hospitalized. And Steve said it was likely to treat hepatitis. This Hmm. brings me back to Elizabeth Short. Remember how in 1946 she told her friend Marjorie she was getting married that November when her beau was well enough after recovering from something at a hospital? Yes. I mean, it could have been another one of her fibs. Who knows? There also could have been a lot of people in the hospital at that time, (sighs) Mm. post-World War II, but it is consistent. Didn't she say it was a lieutenant, too? It was some (sighs) high-ranking military official. And that same September... Elizabeth told a male suitor, Peter Vetcher, who was the service man passing through L.A., who she met outside the Biltmore Hotel, that she was seeing an older guy she wanted to break it off with but wasn't sure how. And according to a 1946 article, she had told friends that she was seeing a guy named George. I have to say there was another person of interest named George as well, but he was not a doctor. Even if it's not true or it's another George, that is a really weird coincidence. There's probably no way to know if it was him now, I guess. Yeah. What would their age difference have been? Well, he was 37, so about 15 years. But just to demonstrate how George and Elizabeth were hanging out in the same areas, in the fall of 1946, Elizabeth was moving around downtown LA, East Hollywood, and Los Feliz. She'd lived at Hollywood and Vine, which is a seven-minute drive to the Souden house. That always makes me want to scream, Hollywood and Vine. You know that Lana song? No, you don't. Okay. <laughs> She also stayed on Sunset by Tytown, which is a six-minute drive away from the house. And then the house that she lived at behind the Florentine Gardens, where Mark Hansen, the nightclub owner, let her live, was a mere four-minute drive away. At one point, she lived just two blocks from the Soden House. Okay, so a lot of overlaps while the Hodels were living at the Soden House. Yes, and Vetcher also told authorities that Elizabeth mentioned a wealthy woman she visited in Hollywood slash L.A. who made improper advances towards her, which could have been one of George's many bohemian lady friends who you're about to hear Mm. more about. Because speaking of the Hodel's parties, one of them led to disastrous consequences. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Bravo, bros. Good job. Great. What did he do now? Well, George wasn't exactly hanging out with other neat and tidy doctors. He loved surrealism, and he was super tight with the surrealist photographer Man Ray, as well as John Houston and Vincent Price, a horror movie star, and this artist named Fred Sexton, who's also a known sexual abuser. Lovely. He hosted gatherings at his house where they would talk about surrealism and they would experiment with things like hypnosis. I'm sure they were drinking and doing lots of drugs. Well, I guess I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I imagine they were. (laughs) Right. And fair warning, we are about to launch into the incest portion of today's episode as we focus on one of George's victims his daughter, Tamar, from his ex-wife, Dorothy Number 1. Tamar spent summers at the Soudan house with her dad since she was 11 years old, but in 1949, when she was 14, her mom sent her to live there permanently because they were having unspecified issues. Hmm. She later claimed that her dad sexually abused her 
during those summer visits. And she'd processed it in a way that made her perceive it as an honor and incest as normal or common. Which I feel is safe to assume she picked it up from him. Either it was part of his manipulation tactics or it was a coping mechanism. Right. Soon after she moved in, in June of 1949 or in early July, it's disputed what the date is, Tamar got back to the Souden house after hanging with some friends. And there was a party going on and she went into her dad's room where there were three other adults. Fred Sexton, aka the known sexual abuser, two women, Barbara and Corrine, and then George. Tamar was served something in a glass and she remembered one of the women taking her clothes off and Fred kissing her, which Barbara and Corrine later corroborated. Once Fred kissed Tamar, George then kicked Corrine and Fred out because George said he did not want to talk about the issue with Tamar in front of everyone. But Barbara was still in the room under hypnosis and Tamar said her father proceeded to rape her. That's horrible. I know. A couple of months later, Tamar got pregnant Mm. and sought an abortion. Some researchers insist that George was opposed to abortion, which motivated Mm. an angry Tamar to accuse him of all of this stuff in the first place, while others say that George performed illegal abortions himself and set up the appointment for her, which is what I tend to believe. Tamar was taken to an appointment on Wilshire, and after the procedure, she profusely bled on a bed when someone affiliated with the appointment proceeded to sexually assault her. Tamar then went to the Souden house, and this must have been a phase when Dorero, her ex-stepmom, was around the house because when she got home, she told Dorero everything. And Dorero was rightfully afraid for Tamar's safety and encouraged her to run away as she was not safe in her father's home. And years later, Tamar claimed to her half-brother Steve that this was the moment Dorero confessed the story about Ruth Spaulding, the assistant, likely to show Tamar that George was really capable of horrible stuff and that kind of raising the alarm so that she would get her to really run away. So Tamar hid out with some friends until her parents reported her missing and tracked her down. She then went to juvie and became a ward of the court, telling authorities there everything so they wouldn't send her back to her dad's house. They decided to pursue the case. And I think it's worth noting that it was a separate unit from the corrupt LAPD, which a lot of people think George had some dirt on. The authorities searched the Souden house and seized some predatory photographs and what authorities called pornographic art objects. And side note, he was a collector and he had a $25,000, a thousand-year-old Chinese sacrificial tablet on display in the home. And it was stolen when the house was burglarized in 1947. That was the year that Elizabeth died. Hmm. Well, good. He deserved it. I tend to agree. But also, Steve suspected that he had actually shipped those back from China when he was over there with the UN and that it was all part of an insurance fraud scheme. But we don't have time to go into that today. (laughs) So George explained away the incriminating art and activities by claiming that he was, quote, delving into the mystery of love in the universe. What even? He told authorities he, his guests, and Tamar were in his bedroom during the party because he was going to do a demonstration of hypnosis. (laughs) He's quoted saying... The action which I was accused of participating in is unclear, and I'm not sure if I was dreaming or if it was real, and if I was being hypnotized or hypnotizing someone else. I mean, how does that hold up in the judicial system? Like, is that not an admittance of guilt? But it gets worse. When he was originally arrested on October 6th, 1949, before he got counsel, he said to the DA, these things must have happened. 
So how was he not arrested? Uh-huh. And he said he wanted to talk to a psychiatrist. The hell is going on? He was out on bail within the day, but was charged Ugh. with incest. And while awaiting court for two months, Tamar lived in juvie. Meanwhile, a separate case unfolded against the doctor who did the abortion. Mm. And the charges were also pressed against that doctor's assistant, who was named Charles, and a 23-year-old boarder living at the Souden house, Joe Barrett. Okay. George may have had Joe bring Tamar to the appointment, and he was charged with suspicion of statutory rape. Joe, Charles, and the doctor all got off, though, of course. Come on. Poor Tamar. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to George's trial. While testifying, he said he noticed Fred Sexton and Tamar, quote, sprawled on the bed, embracing with her bra and blouse removed. Which he did nothing to stop. And that Barbara, the young woman Tamar says undressed her, stayed in the room, according to George, because she was still under hypnosis. Uh, do we even buy the hypnosis thing? What did Barbara say? Did she testify? Well, under oath, she said George and Tamar kissed but did not have sex. And then she later tried to recant her statement. And she was arrested for perjury as a result and then charged in a separate case for endangering a minor. My guess is George paid off the witnesses who were scared of him. And one of his lawyers, Jerry Geisler, paid off the judge who also made a disgusting comment during the trial. The comment was, it's unsafe for a man on the street to pat a child on the head these days. Ew. And Geisler was the defense attorney in a ton of high-profile cases, including Marilyn Monroe during her divorce from Joe DiMaggio. He's one ugly fellow. Google him <laughs> if you've never seen. <laughs> Jerry also represented some pretty bad dudes, including Bugsy Siegel, the notorious gangster who hired another mob guy, Mickey Cohen, to work with him as a gang boss. And Mickey Cohen is the same guy that people suspected Mark Hansen of being connected to. And one of the main reasons the LAPD was so corrupt in the 40s. Geisler was also president of the Beverly Hills Bar Association. So he was powerful, connected, and he was so good that the saying in Hollywood for celebrities facing criminal charges was, get me Geisler. Whoa, wait, where was Tamar's stepmom, Dorero, in all of this? Or her real mom, Dorothy? Well, Dorero was not called and she did not attend the trial. And then her own mother said that she wouldn't believe Tamar under oath and that she had made accusations of molestation over the years. So they're discrediting her and victim blaming her. Mm -hmm. Did the Fred guy testify? Was he involved? He took a plea agreement in exchange for his testimony against George. But keep in mind, George's trial happened in 1949. That's two years after Elizabeth's body was found. And Lieutenant Jemison was instructed to do his own grand jury investigation around this time. So interest in the Black Dahlia case was picking up again. And guess what was brought into evidence at George's trial? Tell me. Tamar told Joe Barrett, the boarder, who then told George's defense team, and they brought it up in cross-examination. This house has secret passageways. My father is the murderer of the Black Dahlia. My father is going to kill me and everyone in this household because he lusts for blood and is insane. I was not expecting that. Yeah, and it was actually reported on in papers at the time, but not in a serious capacity. She denied it on the stand, but according to Steve, Tamar didn't just say it once randomly. She had talked about it with detectives when they were transporting her to the trial. Hmm. They said it was evidence of her lying and that it was way too far-fetched. It's kind of a risky move to bring that into court just to discredit her, but... I agree. But George had the best lawyer's money could buy, and he was acquitted by late 1949 on the incest charges. What happened to Tamar? After the trial, she got pregnant with a daughter named Fauna Hodel, who went on to write a memoir once she was an adult. 
which was the source material for the TNT series, I Am the Night, which starred Chris Pine. Pregnant by who? Her daughter didn't have the father's last name. That's kind of the biggest mystery of all this and also one of the main themes in Fauna's book. She writes about how she was put up for adoption Mm. and she was told she was biracial and shunned by both the black and white communities for not fitting into either. In her 20s, she went on to meet her birth mom and the night they met, Tamar told her about George, including the incest trial, as well as the link to Elizabeth Short. And from there, Fauna learned her little sister, who actually ended up changing her name to Fauna too, Mm. because she thought it would make Tamar love her more, was abused and essentially sex trafficked throughout her childhood. That is horrible. So Tamar ended up reenacting a lot of the abuse she experienced herself. It is horrible. I mean... Horrible question, but going back to who Fauna's dad was, since she was born after the incest trial, did anybody suspect that George could have been her dad slash grandfather? DNA tests eliminated him as her dad. Okay, that's good. Mm -hmm. In January 1950, a month after the acquittal, another dramatic event unfolded at the Souden House involving Lillian Lenorak, a woman who claimed to witness Tamar's abortion. She was a dancer part of a famous troupe and ran in similar Hollywood-adjacent circles. And I was confused about her connection to the case at first, but one of the things found in Jemison's files for the investigation into Elizabeth's murder was a letter from a Santa Barbara policewoman to Jemison that outlines the officer was summoned while off-duty, so kind of doing it as a favor, to the Souden house to help Lillian, who was about to become another one of George's victims. But another Hmm. crazy twist... The Santa Barbara officer in question is Mary Uncafer, who was the same officer that arrested Elizabeth for underage drinking in the early 1940s and then let her stay with her. That's weird. So I'm going to walk you through her letter to Jemison, which outlines the situation. And our producer, Jesse, is going to read Uncafer's letter, and then I'll chime in with analysis as we go. Mrs. Hamilton asked me to go to the home of Dr. Hodel on Franklin Avenue to get her daughter and her daughter's baby. Mrs. Hamilton refers to Lillian Lenorak's mother, who lived in Santa Barbara, and her baby was a three-year-old son, John, who shared a dad with Mia Farrow of psycho fame. Hmm. As to how Mrs. Hamilton knew that they were at the Souden house, it's unclear. I called Dr. Hodel before I left Santa Barbara to make sure the patient was at his home and there would be no chance of me running into a snag when I got there. Dr. Hodel told me it was necessary for her to be removed from his home the same evening as he intended to put her in an institution in L.A. if she was not immediately taken back to Santa Barbara. He informed me that two of her friends were there and they would return to Santa Barbara with Lillian to keep her from becoming too much of a problem on the way. When I arrived at the Franklin address, I sent something wrong as soon as I entered the building. The doctor seemed very anxious to tell me that the girl was in a bad mental condition and that she had attempted suicide. I asked where the parties were who were going to ride to Santa Barbara with me and he said he could not get in touch with them. But when I assured him that I would not take the girl with me unless her friends would go along, he called Karen Tudikian, who came to his home, to go with me. Two young men volunteered to drive another car and follow me. Joseph Barrett, who lives at the same address on Franklin, and another young man who offered to drive Barrett there and then take Karen and Barrett back to L.A. Karen was a modern dancer as well, so that's probably how she knew and was close with Lillian and also ran in the circle. And my guess is that George was not planning on informing Lillian's friends of her suicide attempt, but had to once Uncafer was summoned to the house. When I asked to see Lillian, Dr. Hodel explained I had no need to worry about her giving me trouble on the way. He stated he gave her a large enough dose to keep her asleep for three hours. A dose of what? We don't know, but the circumstances sound like Ruth's unfortunate demise to me. Interesting he would admit to dosing her, too. 
I guess he could hide behind that doctor title. With the aid of a maid who looks like a hophead, we packed Lillian's clothes and it was about 10 p.m. before we got away from his home. Dr. Hodel and Barrett took Lillian to my car, holding her up on both arms. That wakened her and she began to tell us about the doctor. She talked a great deal about her relations with him and she stated that she was very much afraid of him. She said she had witnessed an abortion performed on his own little girl and then stated that he threatened to have her child taken away from her if she did not testify in his favor in court. She said he knew of some of her foolishness in connection with a man called Charles and that Dr. Hodel was holding that over her. The doctor's assistant for Tamara's procedure was named Charles and as you'll remember, that was one of the people who was charged in the separate trial. She said she never attempted suicide and had never cut her wrist or hands. She stated that the doctor constantly gave her drugs and that when she wakened, the cutting had been done. I'm wondering and worried about the use of constantly because to me that suggests Lillian did not just show up that night, but maybe was living there or was held there. Similarity I see between Elizabeth's prolonged time with her captor and then drugs and making somebody comatose would also explain fewer screams though his basement could certainly muffle those as well without it. Also, this big reveal that she was cut, maybe it was to stage an attempted suicide. While I was in the doctor's sitting room waiting for Karen, I asked the doctor what had caused the girl to go haywire so suddenly. He said it had something to do with what she said in court. It was not until Lillian wakened and told us how she had perjured herself in court for the doctor that I realized what case had caused her so much worry. There were scratches and bruises on her forehead and arms. Her three-year-old said doctor knocked his mommy down and made mommy cry hard. On the way north, the car with the young men in it drove behind us. And it was after I left Lillian at the psych ward at the general hospital that I had a chance to talk to Barrett. Uncafer dropped Lillian off at a psych ward because she and her mom did not get along. But Lillian's mom clearly wanted to protect and save her grandson. So Uncafer brought John there. Barrett stated emphatically that there was nothing wrong with Lillian, except what had been brought on by the cruel treatment from Dr. Hodel. He stated he knew Lillian perjured herself at the trial because the doctor had her under his influence. He stated that the relations between the doctor and his child were terrible, worse than I had any idea, and that the doctor boasted that he paid Jerry Geisler $15,000 to influence the DA. That was how he was clear of the charges. He stated that Lillian had fallen in love with Charles, an assistant to another doctor friend of Hodel's. Lillian stated that she had a very guilty mind after the trial and told Hodel that she was going to tell the DA that she had lied and that Dr. Hodel told her that if she squealed, he would name Charles and the other doctor as the ones who performed the operation. Barrett spoke of Hodel as a... No good guy. Then Uncafer went to visit Lillian at the hospital the next day where... Lillian stated that she would like to tell me all the true facts concerning the doctor's activities and the trial, but that she knew he would have her and her baby done away with. She said she'd like to have told the men from your office all about it, but she was just plum scared to tell for fear he would carry out his threats. This morning I went to the hearing at the psych ward and it was determined that she is mentally upset. The doctor said the condition was brought about by the strain of the trial. They felt she should have medical care, so she is to be taken to Camarillo State Hospital. If the feeling between her and her mother was not so strained, she might have been given a chance to go home and be taken care of by her mother. Barrett and Karen attended the hearing. Barrett has had a chance to talk to Dr. Hodel and knows the DA's office is interested in the case. He seems afraid he might be questioned about the trial. His whole attitude was changed. He now speaks of the doctor as a not-bad fellow with plenty of worries of his own. He spoke and acted as though he is sorry he opened his mouth the night I brought Lillian home. And the letter essentially ends there. So clearly when the DA's office questioned Joe, he went back on his word and downplayed it. But in a 2003 TV interview for ABC's Dateline, Joe said he witnessed an incident in early 1950. So referencing the night that Uncafer was called to the Souden house, he said he walked in on Lillian upset, saying he has to pay for what he's done. 
And Joe said Lillian had been friends with Elizabeth Short and was convinced that George killed her, which is what she was referencing, and that Lillian and Elizabeth actually met at the Souden house. Okay, wait, so Lillian knew Elizabeth? Well, that's what he's saying now, and that's what she claimed was true as well. So it's just whether or not we believe that. And then in the same interview, he also said Lillian knew Elizabeth and had met her at the house and said that George had to pay for killing her. Met her at the Souden house? Yep, that's what she's been saying this whole time. It's just that people have discredited her because she was institutionalized. But she was institutionalized because she couldn't go to her mom's house. Also, the reason that Uncafer wrote to Jemison in the first place was because she knew that he was already investigating George in connection to Elizabeth, as Lillian had named Hodel in an earlier interview. So Jemison did try to speak with her further, and that's when he found out Lillian was locked up in a psych ward and then asked Uncafer to tell him what happened. So then what happened to Lillian? Did she ever get out of the psych ward? Well, she was eventually released, but George was having her tailed for a while (gasps) after, according to a separate letter written by another sergeant. He's awful, even if he didn't do it. Agreed, Mm. agreed. And sadly and strangely, Lillian died about a decade later in 1960 in an unrelated homicide in Palm Springs. Poor Lillian. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Who else was Jemison investigating in Elizabeth's case at this point? That's a good question. In his investigation, Jemison listed 22 possible suspects, most of which we went over last week. A big majority of them were doctors or established acquaintances, and a couple of them did not have a known connection. But they were still from that original list of 300 witnesses, persons of interest, and suspects. But none of those names were in the Biltmore registration records. So Jemison thinks that the killer either used a pseudonym there, left the hotel after meeting Elizabeth there, maybe at the bar, or that that's not even where the killer crossed paths with Elizabeth since we established that she was seen after the Biltmore. And of course, one of the 22 suspects was Dr. George Hodel. How exactly did George get on Jemison's radar? He had surgical skills and a history of sexual assault from the incest trial. And authorities were looking into all L.A. doctors that met those two criteria. Oh, okay. And there were other things that made him more suspicious. Remember how a witness at the dump site saw a late 1930s Ford sedan pause for four minutes and then drive away around 6.30 a.m. on the 15th? Okay. Well, George drove a black sedan. It wasn't a Ford, but it matches that description. Like if you look at side-by-side photos, they're almost identical. Okay, and somebody seeing a car in passing might not immediately know the make and model. So maybe Ford was just a wrong guess. Mm -hmm. Also, you know how Elizabeth's body was left on Norton Avenue? Mm -hmm. Two blocks away, there's a street named Degnan, which is the same last name as the little girl I mentioned in part one last week who was murdered in Chicago when Beth lived there. Oh, that's weird. Uh And that was the other bisection case, right? Yes, that she was obsessed with. So. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with George, unless, of course, George did kill Suzanne Degnan too, which Steve Hodel does think, by the way. So here's what Steve said. She was investigating the Degnan and the Lipsy right. in Chicago. I think she either suspected or found something or something pointed her to suspect him as being involved in that. And I think he somehow found out that she was snooping into that crime. Okay, but let's stay on track and revisit stuff about motive later. Okay. 
So in February 1950, a month after Lillian's ordeal and two months after George's acquittal, Jemison and his partner interviewed George because both Lillian and Tamar had mentioned to Jemison that George had crossed paths with Elizabeth. So while they questioned George, the LAPD and the DA's sound lab broke into the Souden house and installed microphones inside the walls of the living room, home office, and primary bedroom. Whoa. That's not legal, right? Don't you need a warrant to go into someone's home? Well, it happened during McCarthyism, when it was common for the FBI to breach privacy in the name of getting information on communists. And the representation of communism was anti-American and unpatriotic, which helped legitimize it. But even before that era, there were a lot of court cases about wiretapping and what the concept of privacy even was. So it wasn't really defined the way we know it now. Mm, Okay, interesting. And detectives monitored and recorded these live conversations 24-7. How do I get that job? I was thinking the same until I actually had to read all of these, but they had 40 days of recorded conversations from February to March of 1950. Disclaimer, that reporter I had told you about last week, Larry Harnish, he's been Mm -hmm. very vocal about being sick of people cherry picking from the transcripts. Quote, I get what he means. Yeah. He's saying this, that people are doing it to gather evidentiary support for George's guilt. But I did read all the transcripts, which are mostly just fragmented notes of tedious nothingness, but I still think they reveal a lot. Most of them outline George saying he was broke, Ah. the DA was out to get him, and that he was making plans to leave the country and sell the house, which is consistent with an ad he put out in the paper that calls the house Shangri-La, kind of a play on Shangri-La. Oh, God. His love of dancing was also evident. For example, he bought tickets to see Martha Graham perform. There were also a few other examples of him loving to dance. Mm -hmm. He also warned everyone that he spoke to on the phone that they were tapped. So maybe he didn't realize the situation was worse since there were mics within the walls and everything, not just his phone conversations, was recorded. Damn. So he was probably self-censoring, at least while he was talking on the phone. As for his financial issues, he said, I sold my clinic to pay for the losses in 1946, which was the year that he went to China and possibly met Elizabeth. So we know that he was already broke back then. It was also right before he said that that $25,000 artifact was stolen. And in February, he seemed to be making plans with underage girls. The transcript reads, I have a way about me. I can arrange it with their folks. I have so many girls. I like to have a rest for a while. Hodel says he likes to see parents of each girl and get permission and writing from them to allow girls to travel. Would like to give it a trial in Mexico City. If you have girls over Sunday, have them bring a photograph of themselves. We could stay in the best hotels and make $2,500 per week. The hard job is talking to the parents. So he's trafficking girls. That's what it sounds like to me. Right. And speaking of shady stuff in Mexico, he was on the phone with one of his lawyers saying, I've got a 1936 Packard sedan to trade in and that he wanted to sell it in Mexico. But it gets worse. On February 17th, around midnight, George was heard asking a woman if her husband knew she was there. The following day at 4.20 p.m., the officers noted weird noises and an unknown woman who hadn't been heard until that moment, asking for the operator several times while crying. If they heard a woman in distress, why didn't they intervene? That's the million-dollar question. They just kept trekking along, listening in and taking notes. Jeez, I mean, there's plenty of evidence for them to assume that George was an abuser. So knowing someone was Mm -hmm. crying and asking to call an operator, 
they didn't think to do anything, that's really frustrating. Especially with what just happened with Lillian. Right. And at 7 p.m. on February 18th, George was heard saying to a man, suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. (gasps) I can't imagine somebody saying, suppose I did do it, if they didn't do it. You know, it's weird because we can't hear tone in these transcripts. Yeah. And there's another point where he says something like, at least her name isn't in the papers about the Black Dahlia and incest. And he's talking to his friend who's staying with him, who was going through a divorce at the time. And they had some press about it that was not putting him in a great light. Let's say devil's advocate, if he is just talking about this sarcastically, then he's just annoyed at the negative press because there was one article linking him to Elizabeth Short. However, Mm. I don't think that he was just being sarcastic. And this statement feels very different from the one that he made to his friend about the divorce. So at 8.20 p.m. that night, the notes say that it sounded like he and this unnamed man with a German accent were walking down to the basement. And five minutes later, investigators jotted down that a woman screamed. And before that scream, they didn't identify a woman being in the house. So Mm. where had she been during that? day-long gap. And then someone in the house was heard saying that they needed to call a hospital. Oh my God. Some people theorize that the weird noises were George killing the woman, (gasps) but even if he didn't go that far, he was probably hurting somebody. And the next day on February 19th, they wrote down that George said, realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired. 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. I would be arresting him right there. That's that's enough. That's enough evidence. And then they heard some digging. Ew. I know. This is crazy. I agree. So maybe that was about Ruth? Or do you think it was about the unnamed woman who they heard on the wiretap? I don't know. And I also think it's odd that he says the comment about them not being able to go to the secretary to ask about Elizabeth Short because the secretary would have been dead two years Before. prior to Elizabeth. Yeah. And It's possible that he actually knew Elizabeth for a longer period of time. But Hmm. because we know she was in California earlier. The bugging also revealed that Gerrero did regularly come over. And sometimes he talked about her moving back in. But he also had a lot of girls hanging around him. There was another odd quote about a girl calling him on the phone saying something about amnesia. So here's what people who were transcribing during the buggings wrote down. He said, I don't know of any amnesia that you have. I have had some since you were here. A couple princesses dropped in. I took them to the Burbank to a burlesque. They really enjoyed the show. Burlesque. So I bet he did go to places like the Florentine Gardens then. Me too. It wouldn't be a stretch. It was so close to his house as well. But I'm wondering if someone called being like, hey, what happened? I don't remember. Which screams rapist. (gasps) Yeah. I mean, again, it's a jump, but I found that odd. Also, there was evidence of him and his maid, who Uncafer pointed out, seemed to be on drugs. They had a Mm -hmm. sexual relationship as well, which, abuse of power. Literally. Then on March 22nd, Jemison interviewed Durero in Santa Monica, where she was staying at the time. We're having our producer read you the highlights from Durero and Jemison's conversation. And I'm making Alyssa read Jemison's parts, and I'll chime in with analysis occasionally. On or about the date of the murder, January 15th, 1947, do you remember being out until four in the morning with George Hodel and coming in slightly intoxicated? Now, that's three years ago. I think I explained before 
We never went on drinking parties because of certain tendencies to drink too much. And particularly, if I were near him, I wouldn't drink because from a medical point of view, he doesn't approve of my drinking, and I don't know that I understood the question. Well, the information I have is that he was quite intoxicated himself, and that at the time, on that occasion, he stated that they couldn't pin the Black Dahlia murder on him. No. No. That isn't true. Do you remember ever telling Tamar that? No. I think George told Jemison that Dorero was his alibi, and then Jemison was seeing if she would corroborate it, but she didn't because she didn't realize she was blowing it. She just mm. said she couldn't have been drinking with him out of habit of self-protection because remember that woman, Maddie, who said that George right. hurt Dorero when she drank? Yeah. And her kids were also removed from her care as a result of her drinking. Right. Even though he berated her for her drinking, he knew saying that they were drunk and sloppy would make him sound incapable of carrying out a calculated murder. Also, this might be a good time to tell you that Maddie told her partner at the time of her death that she was relieved Steve was revealing everything about George because she thought he was the one who killed Elizabeth Short all along. Wow. But back to the interview. Did you ever tell Tamar that Dr. Hodel was out the night before the murder with Beth Short at a party? No, I was living in my brother's house at the time. We were not living in the same house. I wouldn't know what he was doing. It sounds like Jemison got this last bit of information from Tamar. I wonder who would have been living at the Souden house on the night of Elizabeth's murder. Yeah, I don't know. Steve said that he and his brothers still lived there in 1947, so maybe Dorero was lying, or maybe that's one of the phases that they were not living there, which means that he did not have an alibi if Dorero was it. Mm. And he would have had the house to himself because Joe Barrett confirmed that the borders didn't move in until the incest trial, or at least around the incest trial, when he was desperate for money. Mm, okay. Has anybody ever told you that Dr. George Odell had Beth Short over to his home? No. For your information, her photograph has been identified by certain persons as resembling the young lady that was over to his house prior to the murder. You never heard anything about that? I never did. Did you ever have lunch with Dr. George Odell at the Biltmore? I imagine so. Is it a fact that Dr. George Hodell did eat lunch or dinner on occasion at the Biltmore? He has taken me for lunch there once or twice, and we have had dinner there, perhaps. For your information, we know of other women who have had lunch with him at the Biltmore Hotel and dinner. It's a central location. There's further information that Dr. Hodell stayed at the Biltmore Hotel on a few occasions. Do you remember those? I believe when he was between apartments, when they had a three-day law in effect, he stayed, I believe. I'm not sure. I think the Biltmore was among them. He made a tour of the hotels and stayed three days in each while he was finding an apartment. Chiming in to point out that this period of time was when he got back from China. There's no other mention of him, though, ever looking or living in an apartment outside of this one. And this is the same exact time frame Elizabeth was staying in downtown L.A., hanging around the Biltmore a lot as well. You understand that a very serious crime has been committed here, and the district attorney would not like it if you were to withhold any information in connection with the murder of this type and we would like to have you give us any and all information you may have in connection with this murder on this suspect, George Hodel. If there is anything you have to tell us, tell us. I have nothing to tell you that would bear out any idea you may have that he did this. All I know is that he is not the sort of man that would psychologically be the kind to do it. He has a fine record as a doctor and is a dedicated man. He has never had a fashionable practice. He could have had. He is a man that really cares about medicine, not earning money, but it is incredible to me that he should be in any way connected with it. Um, wouldn't be that kind of guy. What about everything else we know that he's done so far? Sounds like she's covering for him. Yeah. 
do you know that Dr. Hodel has had a practice with surgical tools? I know he has never practiced surgery. His brand of medicine is VD, generally an administrative medicine. There are photos of George in surgery theaters at med school since he needed that experience to graduate, and he insinuated he'd performed abortions in the bugging transcripts. Plus, if he had an 186 IQ, I'm sure he could remember things from medical school even years later without much practice. Also, in an affidavit prepared by his attorneys, Jerry Geisler and Robert Neeb, George listed PA surgeon in his employment history. Also, the census record listed him as a surgeon, not just a doctor, so that was probably self-reported. And he worked as the sole surgeon at a logging camp, so safe to assume he had some surgical skills. Did you ever hear Dr. Hodel say anything more about the details of this murder of Beth Short, about the body, or anything about it? No, I never heard him discuss it at all. Well, if you look back on the events that took place about the time of the murder, did you have any reason to suspect that Dr. Hodel might have had something to do with it? None whatever. Let me advise you that we do have information that he did associate with Beth Short and, as you know, the last place she was seen alive the evening of January 9th, 1947. I didn't know that. You're positive at this time that you never met that girl. Very, very sure. Jemison then showed Dorero a photo of George with Maddie, asking who she was because he wanted to question her for the case, but Dorero denied knowing her. <sighs> and Jemison found Maddie anyway. Okay, she good. confirmed George knew Elizabeth as well, mm. who she identified through a photo. So if we're to believe Lillian, Tamar, and Maddie, then George definitely crossed paths with Elizabeth Short. Yep. The day after Jemison questioned Dorero on March 23rd, 1950, Dorero went to the Souden house, which was noted in the listening notes. Mm. Only bits from their conversation were caught, but she likely tipped George off because the very next day, he fled the country. <gasps> A new police chief took over in August of 1950, and the grand jury lost interest in the case, so it closed in October of 1950, which was a few months after George left. Why do you think they did that? A lack of evidence? Or maybe, like, Elizabeth's family not being influential enough for them to justify spending more time and resources on it? But the thing is, Mm. her killers could still be out there, so that's a really strong reason to keep looking. Yeah, I agree. It could be all of the above. It could be some sort of payoff. Again, I'm like, how does he even have money if he's fleeing like this? But in February 1951, Jemison had to close it, and he issued his final report to his superiors in which he cleared George as a suspect. He listed everyone that he interviewed who confirmed that George did not know Elizabeth, including several people who had covered for George in the incest trial, which makes me think that they're even less credible. He fled, and then they just cleared him. Mm Mm-hmm. Where did he go? He moved to Hawaii. He worked as the resident psychiatrist at a Honolulu hospital. And he taught a class called Human Personality and Adjustment at the university there, as well as the chief of the psychiatric clinic for the Hawaiian prison system. Also, he had so much press. Like, he definitely liked attention. There were so many random articles about him. And this was a fascinating anecdote I found in a newspaper clipping explaining that while he was working for the Hawaiian prison system, he taught psych ward patients ballroom dancing and the foxtrot. What even? I guess he's done with venereal diseases. Which, again, speaks to his love of dancing. And I feel like that could be an easy place for him to have met Elizabeth Short. And you know how last week when I was telling you about her night with Red Manley, how they went dancing Mm -hmm. before they went to the motel? Oh, yeah. I don't like that. Mm Mm-mm. Wow. But by 1953, he headed to the Philippines with a new wife, 
and had four kids with her before they also divorced. But here's what Steve had to say about Hortensia, the wife from the years in Hawaii and the Philippines. Actually, Hortensia, as a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, actually attended parties at the Southern Franklin house. She responded to an ad that dad had put in one of the East Coast society papers looking for a assistant or a, I don't know if it was wife or assistant. So she came out and then she went on a world tour. And apparently, as the story goes, my father sent her telegrams to every port that she would pull up in and to Europe. And finally, he flew to Hawaii and met her and they got, they eventually got married uh, a year or two later. Uh, she certainly suspected if, if she didn't directly know that he was involved in what he was involved in. I feel like he holds the records for most wives and divorces. Yeah, and she was also loaded, so she probably helped fund his life. And then by the late 60s, George met his last wife, June, in Tokyo when she was his secretary there. I mean, does he get around enough? <laughs> I know. And Steve thinks that June helped George quit killing people, which is obviously a huge claim. Boy. But they came to the U.S. in the 80s and lived in San Francisco until he died in 1999. So here's what Steve said about their relationship. She got him off drinking. She got him off smoking his Havana cigars. She got him eating right, healthy. Hmm. So she really cleaned up his act. And how much she knew, I'm not really sure. And then here's a weird thing that happened with June after George died. I was in the kitchen with her and I said, can I help you? Can I cut up the sourdough bread? I said, do you have a, knife, a bread knife? She says, I, no, I don't have a knife. I said, you don't have a knife? <laughs> what do you mean you don't have a knife? She says, oh, uh, I have a phobia of knives. And uh, so there was nothing larger than a paring knife in the, in the house. Huh. To me, that indicates that there must have been some kind of an incident or on one of my visits, maybe a few years earlier, as I was leaving, he handed me a large pair of scissors that were quite large and long. He says, would you like these? And they were in a leather case and very fancy. And I thought, well, this is a strange gift. Why is he giving me these big scissors? Meant nothing to me at the time, but I have them here in my drawer in front of me. Anyway, I think there must have been an incident or she was, he was afraid he would lose control or something. And I think he just said, hmm. let's get everything out of the house. That's, that's my take on it anyway. That's really and interesting. Basically, his, his, his caregiver, and she really loved him deeply. And there's no question my mother knew. But I don't know how much June actually knew. I think his last crime was in 69. And that's basically when they met. What the hell? Yeah. Wait, can we go back to George fleeing to Hawaii in the 50s? Does Steve have any theories as to why he would have left? Well, he has some theories about George killing at least nine other women in the Souden house. Who were the other nine women? I'm not going to list all nine of them because they deserve to have their stories more fully examined and we don't have the space to do so here. But one of them was Jean Spangler, who disappeared in October of 1949, right after George was released on bail. Her body was never recovered, but her belongings were found in Griffith Park on the Los Feliz entrance side of it. And Spangler was an aspiring actress unlike Elizabeth, who was just rumored to be one. And Jean was a dancer at the Florentine Gardens. Another notable case was the murder of Jean French. Her killer beat her to death and then wrote on her torso and lipstick, fuck you, PD, though it kind of looks like BD. And it happened one month after Elizabeth was murdered, so the press instantly linked them. And if fuck you, BD would have been fuck you, Black Dahlia? That's what people were thinking, yeah. 
That said, there were other strong suspects in those cases, and the criminology is really different in each of them. But I think it speaks to how overworked the LAPD was at the time, too. There were a lot of unsolved deaths of women. Well, speaking of criminology, I get that George fits the profile, but I'm having a bit of a hard time understanding what his motive would have been in killing Elizabeth. Well, okay, I think this might help. In the Root of Evil podcast that Fauna One's daughters hosted and produced, a professor of criminology at CSU Long Beach, Dr. Robert Shug, reviewed the evidence, confirming that it pointed to a calculated and meticulous killer. He explained that the majority of killers have notoriously poorly developed prefrontal cortexes, and this is the part of the brain that's responsible for executive functions like stopping yourself from acting on impulses and emotions, which explains a lot of reactive violence In this case, however, the killer likely had a well-functioning prefrontal cortex, so someone with controlled rage who was calculated and able to compartmentalize, which eliminates people who would have had impulsive rage towards Elizabeth and would have acted on it more on a whim. So this would be people like Robert Manley, who we know had a really good alibi, so he didn't do it, but also all the false confessors. And then another thing that kept coming up with the experts was the term sexual sadist because the case is so uniquely torture-driven. I actually called a forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson, so that we could have her share a little more insight and explain sexual sadism in the context of Elizabeth Short's murder. Oh, awesome. Okay. So here's a clip from our conversation. Yeah, a sexual sadist is basically somebody who has a paraphilia, which is a sexual deviance. In this case, the sexual deviance is getting pleasure or getting sexual um, satisfaction from the torture or pain from other people. You can have the everyday sadist who has no interest in sexually sadistic behavior. And then you can have somebody who has a very severe sexual deviance who, you know, may not be that sadistic in everyday life. And then you do have, you know, serial killers who are sexually sadistic and sadistic all the time. Yeah. You know, nobody's particularly surprised to find out that person's a serial killer because a person's abusive to everybody in their life based on the crime scene you have somebody who is you know cut in half which takes some time you mm-hmm. have somebody who's, who was displaced in a certain way you have somebody who takes risk they put this person somewhere they can be found yeah um who goes to great lengths this person is a narcissist this person wants to get some you know get some attention because of it i think this is somebody who's probably pretty smart so it wouldn't surprise me that this is a person who can fly under the radar you know every yeah. day I don't think we can draw a lot of conclusions about how sadistic this person is in everyday life, but I definitely think we can draw conclusions that this person is a sexual sadist. I think George did fly under the radar for the most part. He blended in thanks to his social status because of his title, successful clinic, nice house, his artist community, and his family, of course. Yet his treatment of the women in his life and his contempt for them were some signs, I think, of his sadism. Right. Plus, he also exhibited narcissistic behavior, according to his family. Okay, now let's address the issue of whether Elizabeth's killer was more likely to be a stranger or someone who knew her personally and was motivated by a vendetta based on the evidence. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. Here's what Dr. Johnson had to say about it. With all the things he did to this person, it seems to be so sexually motivated as opposed to be grievance-related. I mean, beating somebody to a complete pulp might be a grievance-related thing, but this, to me, seems much more sexual. And that means to me, it could be a stranger or it could be somebody that she knew. Okay. So that, I don't see yeah. this as somebody who just has a grudge against her, and all of this violence was a result of that. 
Right. This is not somebody, I think, who just got mad at somebody because of what they did or because of who they are and just decided to do all these things. It just has got too much of a sexual component to it, a sexually aggressive component. And with that in mind, I actually don't think it makes much of a difference whether George did or didn't know Elizabeth well, because she relied on strangers to survive. And most of her friends were also just mere acquaintances. So given everything we've heard, I think that's probably what she and George were, just acquaintances, which does fit in with the whole idea that the killer wasn't motivated by a deeply personal vendetta. And he knew she was a low-key grifter, which would have made her really vulnerable to him. Yeah. I also wanted to ask Dr. Johnson if the killer did all of these terrible things because it was purely torture-driven or if there was any messaging involved, for example, with the fecal matter. My mind jumps to the symbolism of you're full of crap. Yeah. It's horrible. But also, maybe it was just torture-driven. So here's what she had Mm. to say. Maybe the cutting of the face might have some message to it. What does that symbolize? Is it this fake happiness? Is it, you know, but that just seems to be so much given all the things that it's hard to not think that that was part of the torture. I mean, I definitely think that's the case. And before we move on from the profile and talking about whether or not George fit it, let me share Steve's theorized motive. Okay. Remember how George was buddies with Man Ray, the artist? Mm -hmm. Well, he has a famous piece called The Minotaur, which depicts a bisected woman and As I mentioned, George really wanted to be an artist before he pursued medicine, but he was rejected by the art world. Steve thinks that the brutal torture and position of the body were both his masterpiece and an F.U. to the world that rejected him. That sort of aligns with Charles Manson and Mm. the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends. Interesting. And I don't think that's the whole motive here, but I wouldn't put it past him. And interestingly, Man Ray left L.A. for Paris and... 1951. Could multiple people have carried out this murder? I think that'd have to be a lot of twisted people in one space. I don't know, but I also think back to Fred Sexton. He seems more like an accomplice to me. In the 1960s, he also fled the country and moved to Mexico after some claims came out against him from his stepdaughter. Steve thinks that Sexton and Dorothy were involved too, and that they were the man and the woman spotted at the French's, and then again Mm. a few days later by Officer McBride the night before Elizabeth died. So here's what Steve said. So I think the chances are very good that it was probably a terrified Dorothy going along. I don't believe she was there for the murder. I think she left, you know, after they went to the house, and Sexton may or may not have left. I don't know. Do experts think her killer would have just stopped after doing this one time. According to behavioral analysts who have studied the case, it was not a random killing. So to do it again, he would need to be under similar circumstances and pressures, which implies that actually maybe this MO is not his signature in the way that a lot of serial killers function. And there are also studies about serial killers changing their MOs as their fantasies and circumstances change. Also, Back then, it was hard to connect the dots with repeat offenders, especially when they were transient, like George. He'd lived around the entire world. So maybe he did torture and kill again, but we wouldn't know about it. I hate that as an idea. I know. So if we're to believe George killed Elizabeth, then I think it's safe to say she was tortured and killed in the basement of the Souden house. And as we went over, investigators thought Elizabeth was drained and bisected in a bathtub. So detectives did reach out to a plumber that George hired to do work on the house, but nothing came of it. Did they ever search the house? Well, years later, when Steve was looking for info into the Souden house in the UCLA library, he found a folder with receipts from January 9th and 10th, 1947, for work that was done on the house. 
it listed bags of cement and fertilizer consistent with the type found at the crime scene and in Elizabeth's digestive tract. Well, that's pretty incriminating, unless they were really common brands back then. Hmm. Is there anything else about the house that connects him to the case? In 2013, the Souden House owners let Steve come with another retired cop and his search dog, Buster. And Steve was interested in checking out the basement. The floor was still dirt when they went in 2013, and Buster alerted in four locations, which indicated that he'd picked up the scent of human decomposition, Mm. faint traces of which can remain for decades. But the decomp he detected didn't necessarily originate in the basement. And because the house is on a slope at the bottom of a hill, it's possible that they migrated from the hillside above. And the uphill neighbor, whose home wasn't built until after the hotels moved out, would not consent to performing lab work, so they couldn't test it. So could he have buried bodies in the backyard? Maybe, but we can't find out if they actually even are human remains and who they belong to, if they are, if no one lets them test the soil or dig into it. Let's revisit what happened to the Souden House after George fled. So online and in books, most accounts jump right from George to the people who lived there in the mid-50s. But I came across a document from the 1969 Historic Building Survey that included another name, Helen, who owned the house for just one year in 1950. And my dark house brain went to, maybe she was so creeped out and fled. And I found Helen's great-granddaughter and reached out thinking that maybe they would have some good ghost stories. Did she? She didn't know anything about her family's link to the Souden House. And her dad was sure that his grandma, Helen, wouldn't have been able to afford it. So upon asking if she was married or what her job was, thinking that maybe her name was on the deed for a husband or employer, they said that she was the legal secretary of Jerry Geisler, a.k.a. George's lawyer. Mm. So his assistant was handling the sale because he let George use the home as payment. I guess. And I don't know why they wouldn't just drop the case. It just makes me wonder if maybe Geisler knew that George was guilty and didn't want to represent him in a murder trial, especially one as high profile as the Black Dahlia case, to protect his own reputation. I don't know. It sounds to me like it could have been a real estate deal, but it's weird. You're probably right, but he must have transferred the deed to Helen, who then sold it to the Mazur family in 1951. Mr. Mazur was a successful doctor and the dean of USC Medical School. Another doctor. Dr. Mazur was only a few years younger than George, though, so I do wonder if he knew him. And before they moved into the Souden house, they lived in another nearby, fantastic yet somewhat odd home, so they must have appreciated architecture. And I couldn't figure out how long the Mazurs were there, but according to the survey by the Historic Buildings Association, the house was unoccupied by 1968. But I found that it was still owned by the Mazur Trust until 81. So maybe the Mazur kids sold it then. But the public seemed to think that the house was just empty between 1969 and 2001. It's a long stretch. I know. I can't say for sure why the Mazurs held on to the property between 69 and 81. But I did find a report that their 21-year-old daughter passed away in 1968. So maybe that's why. Mm. And remember the live-in hotel maid, Ellen, who Uncle said looked strung out? Yes. Steve said that on, quote, one occasion in the 1970s, Ellen returned to the Souden house and informed the then current owner, this is a house of evil. Oh, whoa. And Steve said that Tamar also broke into the house at one point when it was unoccupied as well. Hmm. I wonder why, did she say? I don't know. I mean, maybe she was doing it for like healing purposes. She told her daughter, Fauna One, that she went into the basement and saw the apparition of a woman. And she didn't think Hmm. it was Elizabeth, but she was not sure who it was. Creepy. 
And I don't think the house was actually unoccupied between the 70s and 90s. I think the Mazars rented it out between 68, but then in 81 transferred ownership to their son because I found a 1988 article where he said, we've been in that house 14 years working on it. Math isn't my strong suit, but isn't that wrong? Weren't they there for way more than 14 years? Yeah, they, maybe they moved out after the sister passed away and then kept ownership and then transferred it to him later. But even so, a lot of locals reported that from the street, it looked overgrown and uncared for, maybe even abandoned. Then in 2001, a new owner stepped in, Zoran Balbus, a designer and developer, bought it for $1.2 million from the Mazars. And most people in the design world don't love him because he's not a preservationist. This one article I read calls him a crystal lover, which gives us a nice image of why they don't like him. I guess that's code from them, at least, for being tacky. Crystals are cool. I'm offended. Yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Personally, I don't think he totally ruined the house, but he did add some gaudy touches, and not all of them are consistent with the original Art Deco look. But he spent $1.6 on restorations, including fixing the deteriorating stonework on the exterior, and he converted the three-room kitchen area into one large open kitchen. He updated the bathrooms, and he installed a pool and jacuzzi in the central courtyard. Hmm. One of the outspoken critics was Lloyd Wright's son, Eric, but in the end, the renovation ushered in a new era of activity to the Souden House, and it's since become a popular venue for celebrity fundraisers and TV and movie and other types of shoots. By 2003, it was up for sale, and whoever owned it in 2016 let the Ghost Adventures host, Zach Baggins, Mm -hmm. investigate the house for his Travel Channel show. And he's an entertainer, not a journalist, but I obviously watched, and Fauna One was in the episode. It was actually shot only a year and a half before she passed away from breast cancer and two weeks before Tamar died. Oh, wow. In the episode, Fauna says that she felt something otherworldly while she was in the basement and that it just immobilized her. She kept repeating, I can't move, and I know she's here. She also said that the reason her birth mom, Tamar, was still alive was because she promised to help that same spirit find freedom and justice because she thinks it was the same one that she encountered when she broke into the house in the 70s. On a later note, the XX shot part of their music video for the song, I Dare You, in the Souden House in 2017, and several other Frank Lloyd Wright homes in Los Feliz make an appearance in the video too, and all their Bougainvillea and Jacaranda Veiled dream pop glory. The video stars Millie Bobby Brown cutting school with friends, and in one scene, they drive up to the Souden house, and one kid says, you know this place is haunted, right? Like, for real haunted. I dare you to go inside of it. And then it cuts to the music. It is pretty cool how the Souden house is a really big piece of the local lore in Los Feliz. Mm-hmm. And the year after the video came out in 2018, this guy, Dan Goldfarb, and his wife bought the Souden house after making bank from their cannabis mm. for pets company. They'd never been to LA or seen the house in person. Dan's friend sent him the listing as a half joke, but it worked out because in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Dan said, when you walk into the house, whether you're eight or 80, no matter what you've seen or done, it makes you pause and be in the moment. The people who get to see it feel how tranquil it is. But at night with the fire going and the vibes, I can see how it would feel scary for some. Mm -hmm. Then when asked about ghosts, his wife said, we have these amazing Persian cats. And if any bad spirits arrive, they would keep them at bay. It's a very peaceful place. The cats Mm -hmm. are so cute. And they used it as a residence, but also to host events. And the event company they collaborated with operates under the name The Black Dahlia, which I have some Mm -hmm. notes for. In 2022, they sold it to Nate 
Donishgar for $6.16 million. And I couldn't find much info on him other than that his family owns another classic L.A. haunt, the Grand Central Market in downtown L.A. Best of luck, Nate. Nate, please convince the uphill neighbors to let Steve <laughs> test the soil for human remains. Totally. Inquiring minds need to know. So that's it on the Souden house and bodies buried under the basement or not. I know that if I ever stepped foot inside of it, after looking at all the photos, I actually have a new appreciation for this whole layout. I love the design of it, but I would just feel so haunted, maybe not by ghosts, but definitely by this heavy, sad energy, knowing of the abuse that went down there. But I feel like there are still so many unanswered questions. And if a genie told me that I could wish to know every detail behind one unsolved case, I would absolutely pick this case. So are you not convinced it was George then? Oh, I feel torn. Everyone who investigates this case, professionals and not, gets really passionate and extremely territorial over their theories, which then makes it hard not to get swept up into them. That and then the suspects, which were in the triple digits, all seemed to have motives. I want to know why they dropped the ball and let George get away if they really thought he did it. Walter Morgan, a detective who assisted Jemison, said in a 48 Hours episode, the only thing I can think is that some money must have transpired between two people. And then the interviewer goes, it sounds like you think it may have been a cover up. And he replied, well, everybody thought that. Mm. And it makes me think back to Jerry Geisler paying off the judge. And look, I don't think sloppy police work is the only reason it's unsolved because I do think that there were some investigators on this case who were really great, but it's certainly one of them. And we've talked about this a couple times, but we know that the LAPD lost a lot of the evidence and they finally admitted that it was last signed out from the secured evidence room by one of the LAPD criminalists on the case back in the 50s, and it hasn't been seen since. Was it all of the evidence or just some? Well, Elizabeth's belongings, for starters. Maybe that cop sold some of it or hmm. I don't like what would he do with it and not put it back I mean either that he really did lose it or it was a cover-up but other lost items include the notes that the killer sent to the paper the watch that was found near the dump site hmm. George's fingerprint cards from his arrest and worst of all black hair follicles belonging to the suspect so basically hmm. the evidence that could yield a DNA sample is gone and reminder George's hair was black. I mean, this just makes it even worse for Elizabeth's family. They already had to deal with her murder, but then to find out that the case went cold because they lost all this evidence. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, every few years on the anniversary of the death, some papers would continue to report on the Black Dahlia case, but Elizabeth's family didn't seem to really want press in the first place, let alone in years yeah. after. And I don't think that they pushed investigators to keep digging. If they did, it wasn't reported on. Maybe that's just not how they coped. And according to her mom, Phoebe's obituary, she ended up having 13 grandchildren by the time that she died in 1992 at the age of 94. And her sisters went on to live happy, successful, full lives. I really do hope that Phoebe and Elizabeth's four sisters were able to find some kind of peace. And I know that sounds trite, but I really do hope that. And I hate that it won't ever be solved. I think she died a really hard, brutal death. And there was no justice and a lot of exploitation. I know that even having podcast episodes about this is controversial. But one thing that I can tell from all of the photos of her 
is that Elizabeth seemed to really enjoy life and live it to its fullest. Mm. I hope that she enjoyed her life at least up until those last few months. I think she did. And regardless of whatever happens and whatever did happen, I know that this case will always haunt LA and online sleuths and people are going to continue to try to make money off of her. And I also think it's possible Los Feliz really is cursed. In the 20s and 30s, tons of people died in Griffith Park fires. The biggest fire in LA history to this day killed over almost 30 people. And there were also disastrous floods, which is why the LA River was covered in concrete, which led to a huge issue with the water supply there. And it Mm. still is true today. And then there was all the drama of the hotels at the Souden House in the 40s, the Los Feliz murder mansion, femicide in the 60s, and it's where the Hillside Strangler operated in the 1970s. No shortage of issues. And then don't forget Peg and Twistle, the girl who jumped off the Hollywood sign. Mm. And the Tate LaBianca murders obviously weren't far. Right. I mean, look, I'll never stop spiraling every time I think about this case, which I do and will continue to do often. But for the sake of ending this episode, I will wrap up by sharing an idea I got from reporter Larry Harnish, actually. He makes an annual donation in the name of Beth Short to Heading Home, which is an organization that supports people experiencing homelessness in her hometown of Boston. I've also personally done some work with the Downtown Women's Center in L.A., which would be another great organization to donate to or work with in Elizabeth's honor if anyone listening feels so inclined. And with that, I will pass the baton to you, Alyssa. Well, thank you. I will gladly accept it. And thank you for all of your research on this two-part episode. It was riveting. Thank you. I know that some of the pictures kept you up at night. So True. Thank you. I'm very excited for next week's episode. We're going to be going to Alabama, which will be new territory for us. And it's going to be an equally devastating and wild ride. So buckle up, everyone. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. And as always, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on. We love getting your feedback and it really helps us just make a better show for you. Yeah. And share with your friends and networks. Your support keeps us going. Also, on a positive note, Happy October. It is our season. Tis the damn season, guys. (laughs) 